Well, let me pray, and then we will dig into doctrines of angels and demons. Lord, thank you for creating the whole world and everything in it, including angels, including demons. God, we've, we've seen that you've created all things already, and we've seen that you have a purposeful plan for all things so that your people would lovingly worship you. God, that is your providential plan for all of creation, and angels and demons are a part of that. They're a specific part of that, God, and Lord, I pray that we would come out of this with a clearer understanding of what angels are and why you made them and how they interact with us, how they interact with the world, God, and how they're part of your purpose for the world and your purpose for us, God. So teach us, and would you bring us to a place of greater love for you um, and, and more effective obedience for you, God. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so first we're going to talk about angels, and then we're going to talk about demons. Um, so we'll get to demons just in a moment, but as far as angels go, and I think demons fit in this category too, they're one of the first things to kind of be like mythologized, it seems to me. Like, probably that and doctrines of hell, which we'll talk about later. It makes sense to me why people want to mythologize doctrines of hell. I don't totally understand why people want to make angels mythical. Maybe because they can't see them. I'm not sure. But even the Sadducees didn't think angels were actually real. If we look in Acts 23, it says, The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. No angel, no spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Jesus has some encounters with the Sadducees as well over the same issue. And I just, from the get-go, I want to point out, we do need to say that angels and demons are real creatures. They are real creatures. Angels are real, Hebrews 1.14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out, to sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? They're spirits that God created to serve us. They're not just fairies, and they're not just natural disasters or something like that. They're personal creatures. Same with demons. We're going to find that as we move on this morning. But I want to like note that at the beginning. There are a lot of people who, if they're skeptics, angels are kind of like the first thing to go for them. Um, and so that's, I don't think the Bible allows us to, to feel that way. And we'll see more of that as it goes on. One of the challenges to talking about angels, one of the challenges for someone like me putting together a theology class about angels, is that pretty much every moment that angels are referred to in Scripture... They're peripheral, like it's not the main point of the passage. They're like incidental to some other topic. A, a few examples that might be a little bit funny even. Matthew 22. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like the angels in heaven. That assumes that we know that the angels don't marry in a lot of ways. So it's, it, it's like a, it's a peripheral incidental statement. 1 Corinthians 11 might be more peculiar to us. Neither was man created for woman, but woman was made for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. And that's just all Paul gives us. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But most, I think that illustrates the point, most of the statements about angels are incidental to another topic in Scripture. So it's, in some ways, we don't have a ton of um, positive information. We have some, and we're going to talk about what we have. 
but we don't have a ton of, we don't have a, in the Bible a systematic presentation of angels. Um, uh, Thomas Aquinas is famous for being the angelic doctor. He's a, um, uh, in the, he's a theologian from the Middle Ages, a Catholic, and he's, he has 118 questions that he poses in his um, Summa Theologica, where he is, says 118 different things about angels, most of which are not directly informed from Scripture, but they're conjectural, that he determines from philosophy. There's a lot that we say about angels, perhaps more than we should say, but then sometimes we don't say anything or we don't say enough. So anyway, here's some things that I think we should say about angels. Angels are created. They are created. God created all things. We've talked about that. Psalm um, uh, 148 talks, talks this way. Praise him, all his angels, and it goes on in verse 5, for he commanded and they were created. Angels were created. Very definitely. Nehemiah 9, you made heaven with all their host, that angels are heavenly beings, they're the host of heaven. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and visible thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That includes angels. But something that we also need to say is that angels are not created in the image of God. Only humans are created in the image of God. Maybe a funny note, uh, going into my love life a little bit. I will never tell my wife that she looks like an angel. I'll never do that. Why will I never tell my wife she looks like an angel? <laughs> Good morning, ladies. <laughs> That's a funny time to enter. To enter. Why not? <laughs> well, you'll you find out. <laughs> oh, Hi funny. there, my name's Alden. Have we met before? I've seen you. You've seen me. Okay, well, Kiki. my name's Alden. What is it? Kiki. Kiki. Yeah, Good Kiki. to meet you, Kiki. Kiki. This morning we're talking about the doctrines of angels and demons is what we're doing. So this is like, a, what this is, just so you know, is a, like a Sunday school theology class for like an hour before church kind of thing. I didn't realize you were in the, that you were trying to call, I would have said hello earlier. Oh, actually, I told you what was happening out there. Oh, sorry. Sorry about that. Well, here we are. Welcome. Glad to have you. I picked up her for you. <laughs> That's perfect. That's perfect. And your, your name is Kiki? Kiki. Just K-I-K-F. Yeah. Kiki. Cool. Good to meet you, Kiki. Alden. And welcome, Vika. <laughs> so we're talking about angels. We pretty much just got started. You barely missed anything. We're talking about how angels are created, but how angels are not created in the image of God. Only humans are created in the image of God, and this is why... You ladies walked in when I was saying, I'll never tell my wife that she looks like an angel. I'll never do it. And ladies, I don't think you should ever let a man tell you that you look like an angel because he's insulting you because you are made in the image of God, not in the image of angels. You image God who's more beautiful than angels. I'm just saying. That's... Amen. Amen. Okay. You don't look like an angel. None of you do. You look like God. That's wow. better. That's so much better. That's uncomfortable. Yeah. But God made you that way. Okay. I don't need to look at you in the eye and tell you that. But we don't need to have that, that moment together. But I just want, want you to believe it. Okay. Hebrews 2.16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. God's not peculiarly concerned with angels. Angels aren't even made in the image of God. That's humans. God is peculiarly concerned about humans. He peculiarly loves and redeems humans. That, that's all we'll say about that. Okay. When were angels created? When were they created? 
I'm going to summarize this big chunk. In some ways we don't know, but we at least have a framework of when. We know that creation was finished by the seventh day. We know that. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, that's after Genesis chapter 1, where God just created everything, right? So angels would have been created at least by Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. The challenge is there is no moment in Genesis chapter 1 of any of those six days of creation where angels are said to be made. So what happens? Here's what I think. I'm in, I'll read a passage, Job 38. It seems that angels were created before the earth was formed, in my mind. Now, this is not certain. I don't, want, I don't really want to say this is controversial, but a, a lot of people think that this, we can't be certain about this. I think we can be a little more sure than a lot of people say, but I wanted to let you know that other people feel that you can't be that sure. Anyway, Job 38. God confronts Job and he says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So sons of God elsewhere in Job refers to angels for sure, because that's when the sons of God present themselves to him and Satan gives answer to God. So that definitely sons of God refers to angels elsewhere in Job. So I'm inclined to say, when I laid the foundation of the earth and the sons of God shouted for joy, the angels are the ones shouting for joy over God making the foundation of the earth, which means the angels were created before the earth was created. That's what I think. So I think when God, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I think that that's the moment, whenever that was, and we don't know the timing, the ages or something, we talked about that, our doctor creation, but I think that the heavenly host was created before day one, and that after day one to six, that's the physical world is being created now. That's what I think. You don't necessarily have to believe that. Some of that's a little bit conjectural, I admit, but I think we have a pretty good case for it in Job 38. Anyway... Let's keep going. So we, we at least know that by Genesis 2, 1, God created all the host of heaven and earth. For sure by then, angels were created. The word angel in Greek is angelos. That's just angel or messenger. It could mean either one. So angel does mean, in some, in some cases, messenger. Often they give messages from God. 1 Kings 19.5. I should have given the Hebrew word. I'm forgetting the Hebrew word off the top of my head. Anyway. Behold, an angel touched him, that's Elijah, and said to him, Arise and eat. So an angel comes, comes to him in a vision, tells him something. Same thing happens with Joseph in Matthew chapter 2. We had the sermon series on this where an angel comes to Joseph in a dream and says, You need to get out of here. Angels come to bring messages to God, oftentimes. Also, angels are spiritual beings, so they're not necessarily physical. Here's an, here's an example, Hebrews chapter 1. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand, a few other things that we're not going to talk about right now, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels are spirits. They're spirits. Luke 24, Jesus pretty explicitly says, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So, Angels are not necessarily physical creatures. They show up sometimes with physical manifestations, that's true, but they're not inherently physical creatures necessarily. They're spirits. They're spirits. They're created spirits who minister to us. And in, related to that, they're not usually visible, but there are some cases. They're not usually visible. There are cases, though, when in Scripture, God empowers people to see angels 
in the spiritual realm that they wouldn't normally see. Numbers 22 is an example of this. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down on his face. So he doesn't see the angel of the Lord first. God opens his eyes to see it, and then he sees an angel there. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17 is a, another kind of like, whoa moment. Then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, what does he see? The mountain was full of horses and chariots and fire all around Elijah. There's a whole spiritual realm that we don't see in our day-to-day -day lives usually, but that God empowers in some cases in the Bible for people to, for a moment, see that spiritual realm, and angels are a part of that. So, angels are spiritual beings, they're spirits, that means they're not necessarily physical, and they're usually not visible to us. In light of time, okay, are th there's other heavenly creatures that are identified sometimes in the Bible. I'm not going to go through this whole section. I have more here than I responsibly need to have. But there, so the, the cherubim, the seraphim, and the, I guess the Nephilim I should have included in this possibility. But we're going to talk about that because that is controversial. Anyway, so we're not going to talk about controversy yet. Um, I usually try to save controversies for the end so we can all be on the same, same page together, at least for a little while. Okay, but there's cherubim, seraphim, and then what's called living creatures. You may have heard of these. So, for example, in Exodus 25, the cherubim were placed over the mercy seat in the Old Testament. Now, that was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant that contained the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. So the cherubim were like golden figures that they would put over the top of that. Exodus 25, you should make a mercy seat with two cherubim of gold. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall their faces of the cherubim be. So there's cherubim that they put on the Ark of the Covenant. God is said to be enthroned above the cherubim or on the cherubim in 1 Samuel chapter 4. They seem to have four wings each, um, but perhaps they're not all uniform because... Now, I'll read one example from Ezekiel. It's going to be peculiar. My guess is that this creature is not what they designed in gold on the Ark of the Covenant. I might be wrong, but here, Ezekiel 10, chapter 20, verse 20. These were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Chabar Canal. I knew that they were cherubim. Each had four faces. Each had four wings, and underneath their wings were the likeness of human hands. They got, like, human hands for armpits. I mean, this is like a peculiar creature, you know? And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces that appeared by the Chibar Canal. Each one went straight forward. My guess is that they weren't building... I could be wrong, but my guess is not all cherubim are created identical. Are, are we really putting golden statues with human hands for armpits with something with four different faces? On the, maybe, but maybe it's just a creature with four wings. Anyway, seraphim are only mentioned once in Isaiah. They're the ones that say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. whose whole, The whole earth is full of his glory. That's in chapter six. They have six wings, not four. So that's slightly different than the cherubim who have four wings in every other case. But then we have living creatures. That's in Ezekiel chapter one. Are they basically cherubim? In some ways, they sound similar. In some ways, they seem different because at least in Revelation, those creatures that sound like that have six wings. Some of the ones in Ezekiel have four. So anyway, what's the point? 
what's the point? Well, what do we even say about these creatures, cherubim, seraphim, living creatures, if they're a subset of each other? I'm not sure. Are they angels? I'm not sure. At the very least, there are peculiar and epic, peculiar and epic, heavenly creatures whose purpose is to worship God. That I think that's really the main point. God's enthroned on them. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. They're peculiar creatures, they're epic creatures, and their purpose is to worship God. I think that's the greatest takeaway that we can get from these angelic heavenly beings that aren't, by the way, those, those three cherubim, seraphim, and living creatures are never explicitly identified as angels. That might be because they're physical creatures, I'm not sure. They have wings, they have faces, whereas angels are spirits, I'm not sure. We don't know. A lot of that is conjecture, but at least they're heavenly creatures that worship God, and they're epic. So there you have it. Angels, we're kind of starting to get into like how they function now. Angels can only be in one place at once. In J Daniel chapter 10, he's been, um, Daniel has been sad for, for three weeks, it says, because he had a vision, and he was disturbed by it. An angel comes 21 days later. That's three weeks. 21 days later, he said, hey, I got held up because I was fighting the prince of Persia. I think that's the demon of Persia is probably what that means. Um, but I've now come to basically comfort you. Uh, uh, so, but then I got to come back and fight the prince of Persia after this. You know? So the angel, the purpose I bring that up for is to say, look, there was an angel who was at work doing something, took a brief pause, Archangel Michael helped him out to do the battle so that he could come, is what he says in Daniel 10, t talks to him about the vision, and then goes back to his work. So angels can only be in one place at once. They're spiritual beings that can only be in one place at once. Here is one of the great controversies of the Middle Ages. Can multiple angels dance on a pin? This was like one of, the, one of the great controversies of the Middle Ages. Can multiple angels dance on a pin? That question is asking, can multiple angels be in one place at once? I'm not able to solve the great controversies of the Middle Ages, but at least we need to say this. With Luke chapter 8, verse 30, many demons had been in one man at the same time. Jesus asked him, what's your name? And he answered, legion, for many demons had entered him. So whether the volume of a human can occupy multiple demons or whether demons occupy volume at all because they're spiritual beings, I'm inclined to think not, whatever. So I'm, I lean toward multiple angels can dance on a pin. But at the very least, we have to be able to say, we have to make sure we say, look. Oh, so sorry. No, no, no. I just, wasn't Michael and this angel together battling in the Daniel that you just mentioned? Yeah, 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 yes. Oh, so then you'd be like, well, aren't they in the same place at once? Yeah. Yeah. So my so what what people would probably say to that that's a great question Caitlin and and maybe that's a that's a great point if two people are fighting in the same battle together they're not necessarily occupying the same three dimensional I space see, I see. in some ways I think this question is almost irrelevant yeah. if you know what I mean but I bring it up mostly to say yeah. that angels can do a lot of work together in at least a small space in one person. Like you can have multiple angels inside of the same person at the very least. Demons are fallen angels, we're gonna learn that in 10 minutes. Angels can be invisible? 
So that's a that's a great because yeah I don't know so okay maybe this is really what it, okay. okay you're asking can angels be in people I'm inclined to say angels don't belong in people <laughs> and I think that's right I think that's why there's demons that are in people I've never thought about this before I'm kind of answering yeah, off the cuff yeah, 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 yeah. but even like I think God purposed a distinction between angels and humans like like um, they're not supposed to marry. And, and some people think that's why uh, what's going on in Genesis 6. We're going to talk about Genesis 6. I'm going to leave that be. But there's a distinction between humanity and angels that shouldn't be like crossed. Seems to be a theme in Scripture. I guess by the end of this class, we'll see if that's a convincing answer. But I don't think demons are supposed to enter people. Uh, that's for sure. right? So there's something wrong about what they're doing. It seems to me. Um, but yeah, there's no case of like a holy angel entering into anybody. There are cases of holy angels like touching people and emboldening them and strengthening them. I mean, even this happens for Jesus. This happens for Elijah. Um, but I can't think of like a positive case where an angel entered a person. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we're going to, yeah, possession is a, its own word. Anyway, we're going to talk about that. Okay. I have a quick question. Yeah, yeah, please. So how do we interact with the angels today? Yeah, that is a good question. I hope in part to answer that in a moment. Okay. I think, I think, but if we don't, if I don't fully satisfy that, I want to, I want to, I'll, I'll, I'll try to remember to ask you as we, as we move forward. That's a great question. It's important too. Okay. More about angels. They potentially can be in one place at once. They can at least, demons can be in one person at once. Angels are strong and powerful. Angels are strong and powerful. Psalm 103, I didn't list the verse, sorry about that. Somewhere in Psalm 103, it says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word. So they are mighty. They're mighty, right? 2 Peter chapter 2 says this, Whereas angels, though greater and mighty, in, and power, and that's in contrast to humans who don't believe the gospel. Angels are greater in might and power than humans. They're greater in might and power. Matthew chapter 28, an angel of the Lord rolled back the stone that Jesus was sealed by. That was a big stone. It took tools to roll that stone, and an angel rolls it back. There's other cases where an angel of the Lord kills 185,000 Assyrians who are oppressing Israel. I mean, that's power, right? Acts chapter 19, this, this man who was possessed by an evil spirit mastered people, overpowered them, and they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Man, they're powerful. They're powerful. Angels are powerful. I should have put this uh, a little earlier with the, the dancing on a pin thing for, with the silly controversies. But um, the number of angels, I think, so a lot of theologians, believe it or not, throughout church history, have said a ton about how many angels there are, how many angels fell, and, da, 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 and all sorts of ideas. I think they're saying way more than they should. The biblical data is this, Hebrews 12. There are innumerable angels. Innumerable. Innumerable. We can't number them. They're innumerable. What are we doing numbering them? They're innumerable. <laughs> Revelation 5. There are myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of angels. So we don't need to count them. There's a lot of them. That's what we need to know. Drop the mic. Okay. Okay. Angel ranks. Angel rank, ranks of angels. We know that Michael is an archangel. That's Jude chapter 9 when the archangel Michael is mentioned. 
Revelation 12 seems to also put a priority on Michael's rank. Michael and his angels were fighting against the dragon, it says. Maybe there are multiple archangels, because Daniel 10 describes Michael as one of the chief princes, so maybe there's multiple archangels. We don't know. We don't know. Again, a lot of what we know about angels is incidental to other stuff that the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't usually just present a whole chapter about angels. So a lot of this we're finding from incidental passages about them. So we don't know how many archangels there are. Are there one? Are there multiple? But we know that on some level there's a leadership structure to them. The only two angels that are named in the whole scripture are Gabriel and Michael. Gabriel is mentioned uh, maybe in Daniel is he's a, identified as a man there, but I think Sometimes angels look like men, and we're going to see that in a moment. Like humans, I should say. Um, but and Luke 19, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and bring you good news. That's about Jesus' incarnation. So Gabriel's mentioned. Mike, Michael's mentioned. We talked about that just a moment ago. Angels do not marry seems to be the implication from Matthew 22:30 In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. That's humans. Humans in heaven were not going to uh, marry or, or be given in marriage but are like the angels in heaven. That's another incidental statement, but it seems to be the implication that angels then don't marry each other. Angels are, I guess, celibate, if that's even a relevant word for creatures that weren't designed for marriage. I guess maybe I wouldn't call it celibate. <clears throat> angels just are. They just are. That's just what they do. Um, angels worship God. Angels worship God. Psalm 148, praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Nehemiah 9.6, after talking about God creating the heavens and all their hosts, the host of heaven worships you, it says. The that includes the angels. Revelation 5.11, the voices of many angels say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. So angels worship God. That's a big part of their purpose. Now, what about our relationship with angels? Our relationship with angels. In general, they, well, I don't they serve the elect in particular. They serve us, Christians, the people who are going to be brought to salvation. They serve the elect. So in general, we see Psalm 91. Satan actually quotes this verse to Jesus. That doesn't make it false. It's still true. He, that's God, will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Angels are here to help humans. Angels are here to help humans. Hebrews 1.14, we've mentioned this a few times already. Angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Angels serve us. Angels serve us. A few specific instances where angels served the elect. Daniel 6, an angel shut the mouths of lions. Acts chapter 5, an angel busts Peter out of prison. Matthew chapter 4, angels come and minister to Jesus after he's fasted for 40 days. That's a long time. I'd be pretty hungry. I would need some angelic medicine as well. Um, anyway, so angels serve the elect. Angels serve the elect. How are we feeling so far? Feeling good? Okay, that's good, that's good, that's good. Um, angels rejoice when people get converted. I think this is cool. Luke 15, 10. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. They're like pumped up. Like when people come to faith, they get pumped up. They also watch us. They're part of a, like a heavenly witness, if you will. 1 Timothy 5.21, in the, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ and of the elect angels, 
I charge you to keep these rules without uh, prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So in the presence of God, in the presence of the elect angels, they're part of a heavenly witness. I think that is probably what's going on also in that peculiar passage of 1 Corinthians 11, where it says that's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority over her head because of the angels. We're going to talk about symbols of authority, what, what that means. That, that's, that's downstream. I'm, I'm going to punt on that for now. But there's something about how angels observe us and rejoice over our faithfulness. And, and that's, I think, to be part of our motive even for obedience. is like, man, like, God can be praised by angels for my worship. I, I think that's kind of a fun thing to think about. Temporarily, this is also related to our relationship with angels, we are temporarily below the angels. Hebrews 2.7, where for a little while we are lower than the angels, but, we've been, but we will be crowned with glory and honor. For a little while we're below them, but 1 Corinthians 6, we will be over the angels in the new heavens and the new earth. We'll be over them. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, in the context of when they're suing each other and being um, unjust judges of each other, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Paul is saying, look, guys, if we're supposed to be able to judge angels in the New Jerusalem, how much more can we figure out these like petty lawsuits between each other? Again, an incidental statement about angels, but that means we're going to be over them. I think that's related to how in Revelation 3, 21, Jesus says to the one who conquers, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne. <laughs> I think that is the coolest, maybe the coolest promise in the Bible. Jesus is God himself. He's sitting on the throne. And he's like, here, come sit here with me. Like, whoa! And we're going to talk way more about that. That's part of our salvation study, and that's going to be beautiful. But anyway, we're going to be over angels. Do we have individual guardian angels? I think is a, a question. This is kind of a, a popular idea that we have in the children in particular have guardian angels. This is coming from Matthew 18.10 where Jesus says, I tell you that in heaven, their angels, he's talking about these little ones, children, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. And so people will take that and say, well, each child has an individual guardian angel. Maybe. At the very least, we have this. Angels, again, angels serve the elect. So they're here to care for humanity, right? I'm not sure that individual one-on-one -on -one protection is exactly in view. It might be. At the very least, angels help us. Angels help us. They protect us. I think that's the most that we can probably say. At least with certainty. Okay. Okay. There are moments sometimes, and this is starting to leak into your question, Kiki, sometimes angels look like humans when they come to earth. Hebrews 13, verse 2, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Like, people who come knocking my door maybe are like angels who just are like here to be entertained with hospitality as angels undercover. And I think I'm feeding someone a meal that they need, but really they're like a spirit who has this like facade of a human body and they're like here to like serve me and other Christians. That's just really, really cool. Throughout Genesis 18 and 19, there are three men who come up to Abraham, but then in the very same paragraph, those men are described as angels. Then those angels are described as men. Those angels are described as men, men, angels, men, angels, angels, men. Like, so it's like, they look like people 
So they're kind of, they're not always like showing up, boom, epic, like crazy. Sometimes it is epic, sometimes it is crazy, and there's like thunder clouds and things are going, exploding and stuff. Also, there's no case in which in the Bible an angel has wings. Now the seraphim and cherubim, if they're angels, well then they count. But they're never explicitly identified as angels. Angels aren't these like beautiful like fairies with little wings and stuff. Angels are like, they're, they're spirits. They're non-physical, but when they show up, they're like epic. Like they're super like, that's usually why in the Bible, when an angel shows up to someone, it says, do not fear, because they're like, oh my gosh, this angel is so strong. So anyway, that's, a, that's an aside, but I'm trying to debunk a little bit of fairy tale theology here. Okay. Angels do not experience salvation. They do not experience salvation. And I think this is related to how we're made in the image of God, but angels are not. 1 Peter 1.12, Peter is describing the salvation that the Old Testament prophets are telling us about in the Old Testament. And it, he says, these are things sent by the Holy Spirit, things into which angels long to look, it says. Things into which angels long to look. And that's present tense. They presently long to look into things of salvation. Angels right now look to what we have longingly. Like, I don't want to say they're jealous because they're not, they're at least not sinful because they're holy angels. But we experience something that the angels don't even. We have an intimacy with God that even angels don't have. 2 Peter 2 4 talks a little, hints a little bit at how they don't have salvation. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, da, 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 and he goes on, he makes more of an argument. Again, that's incidental, but God did not spare angels when they sinned. There's no forgiveness for angels. If an angel sins, they're, they're cast out of heaven. They, that's what demons are, and we'll talk about that in five minutes or so. But there isn't forgiveness. When Jesus died, he didn't die for angels. He died for humans. He died for humans. Angels don't get spared when they sin. We do get spared when we sin. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna breeze through. Angels don't themselves judge. They don't they don't judge on their own. Jude nine is an example of this. Archangel Michael doesn't pronounce judgment on the devil, but he says the Lord rebuke you. So angels know that judgment is reserved for God to give. Nevertheless, angels carry out some of God's judgment. Acts twelve is one example. I'll, I'll leave it here. Immediately, this is talking about Herod. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck Herod down because he did not give God the glory. So an angel executed God's judgment there. Uh, angels should not be worshipped. Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. This is John who has a, a revelation of Jesus, a vision of Jesus. He and he says this, I fell down at this angel's feet to worship him, but he said, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. So angels should not be worshipped. God should be worshipped. One little note about the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. Who is the angel of the Lord? There are some cases in the Bible where it's pretty clear that the angel of the Lord, when that, that phrase is used, it's referring to God doing something, not just a typical angel. There are other cases where... It could kind of go either way. We're not totally sure. So it's, it's not necessarily the case that every time we see the phrase angel of the Lord, it refers to God. That might not be the case. 
But there are at least two cases where it seems very clear that it is talking about God. We don't have time to dig into this. This is kind of touching on one of my more favorite topics, so I'm going to exercise some restraint here. I'll, even, I'll, just, I'll just give one verse. Exodus 3, 2, and two, 2 to 6. I'll, I'll summarize it here. I won't read the whole thing. An angel of the Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush. Right? An angel, the, not an angel, the angel of the Lord. When the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So the angel of the Lord appears to him in flame, but God says, don't look at me. <laughs> Wait a minute, this angel's God, sure seems. you know. So Genesis 16 as well, we, we need to move on. But basically, um, oh, what, what's Abraham's... Uh, non-wife's name, is it Hagar? Hagar, Hagar. yeah, yeah. Hagar describes the angel of the Lord as a god of seeing, uh, which I think is another moment where we say, okay, it's the angel of the Lord, but also he's referred to as God, and she seems to be presented in a positive light. So it seems, anyway, okay, I have to exercise enough restraint to, to move on there. But the angel of the Lord sometimes um, is, is clearly God, and I think it's usually Jesus, if not in every case. I think it's usually the person of Jesus specifically doing whatever he's doing. Okay. So we have angels. That's what it that's what that's what we say about angels. That's not probably not a holistic. I probably haven't touched on everything. But that's a lot of the major things that I think we should believe about angels. And then we have demons. Now we have demons. Demons, what are demons? Demons are fallen angels. Second Peter 2:4. God did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. So angels sinned and God punished them. That, that's some information we have. We also have Jude verses 6 and 7. The angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in chains under gloomy darkness, really similar phrase, until the judgment of the great day. Uh, I'll leave it. The rest isn't really about about angels. So there are there the, they were angels, but then they were cast out into gloomy darkness. That that's what we know about the fall of angels. So we know that Satan is the chief of demons. In throughout Scripture, um, the demons collectively are known as are, are referred to as Satan and his angels. Right, so Revelation twelve nine. Satan's the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So they get thrown down, the fall of angels. Similar, there was a fall of humankind. There was a fall of angels. And so that's what's happening here. Matthew 25, the devil and his angels. So Satan's kind of, he's the chief guy. He's like the head angel who fell, if you will. Ephesians 2.2 describes him as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's the spirit, the singular spirit. Matthew 13, verse 19, uh, he's called the evil one. Jesus calls him that. So he's the evil one. He's not just a demon. He's like the demon, you know? He's the lead of the demons. Um, kind of maybe, maybe fun fact, maybe clarifying fact about... Satan. So we've heard Lucifer before. The King James Version translated um, the day star that fell down as referring to a, an earthly king that may be referring to the fall of Satan. 
hard to say for sure. They translated that word day star to be Lucifer. That's where we get the word Lucifer from the King James. Almost no English translation uses the word Lucifer. It's not really per se in the Bible. It's not a, a bad word necessarily, but just the Bible doesn't explicitly describe Satan as Lucifer. I, I just thought that might be relevant to know. He's described as um, the deceiver, the devil, the evil one, etc. We'll see more titles, but Lucifer's not actually one. Um, Satan is the snake. The snake in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made, and then he goes on and tempts Eve. So that, I think that's Satan. Why do I think that's Satan? Revelation 12.9 says that the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, was thrown down, and his angels were thrown down with him. He's a serpent, that ancient serpent. I think ancient is a reference to the beginning. In the beginning, God created, and there was a serpent. I think that was Satan. Um, Revelation 20, the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, was bound and thrown for a thousand years. So I, I think that that snake is Satan himself crawling on the ground. Now, but that begs the question, when did angels fall? When did the fall happen? And, we, and we've talked about, and when we talked about our doctrine of providence, how God orchestrates the world, including even how God uses evil ultimately for good purposes, it does beg the question that we've yet to answer, and honestly, I still can't answer. How, what's the origin of evil? Where does evil come from? In some ways, I'm not sure. The Bible doesn't tell us where evil comes from in an ultimate sense. And so it's hard to know when the angels fell because it doesn't really talk about that. But we at least know this. It happened after Genesis 1.31. God saw everything that he made and behold, it was very good. It was very good. I don't think God would describe a very good world as a world with Satan slithering around tempting his creation. I don't think that would qualify as very good. That's Genesis 1.31. But then Genesis 3.1, the serpent is crafty and it tempts Eve in chapter 3, verse 2. So between 1.31 and 3.1, angels fell. What was the time span there? I'm not sure. I, I don't know. But we at least know that angels did fall. I also think it's fair to say that the fall of angels is not very good. So I think that it would have happened subsequent to God's creation in six days, resting on the seventh. Some, a lot of this, though, is conjecture, as you're probably seeing here. A question that a lot of people do suggest, people will suggest that there might have been multiple angelic falls, that perhaps there was one... Um, in Genesis, right before Genesis chapter 3, there might have been another one uh, in Genesis 6 where we see the sons of God, the Nephilim, are mating with women. And then maybe there's another, we'll talk about that in a moment, that might be an explosion for you and that's, I understand that. But then there's maybe also at the Tower of Babel is another one. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. It seems to me that the Bible just says angels fell. That feels like an indication that there was only one fall, but I don't actually know that. Again, this is, a lot of this is conjecture. How many demons fell? This is going to be similar to my comment about how many angels are there. Honestly, look, how many demons fell? We, we don't know, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> there, are, there are people who will say, it was a third of the angelic host that fell. Why do they say that? Because it says in Revelation 12 that Satan's tail, or rather the dragon's tail, which I take to be Satan, swept down a third of the stars in heaven and cast them to the earth. That, 
that might just be a reference to like the world will get darker. <laughs> I, maybe not. I mean, look, there's a lot of symbolism in Revelation, so I'm not I'm not discounting it. But th- this seems like a stretch to say, okay, because morning stars sing together in Job 38, and then the next line, sons of God shout together. Therefore, angels are morning stars, and that means stars are angels, and that means when this dragon sweeps his tail and knocks down a third of the stars, that's a third of the angels. That just feels pretty stretchy to me. That feels stretchy. It might be right. It might be. I just, I just don't know. Ultimately, I don't think we have enough information, and ultimately, I don't think it matters. What we know is this. There are many angels. There are many demons as well. Demons fell. That's what we have. I think I think that we, we should we should stay there. Um, okay. Oh, so I'm gonna skip that. Um, so okay, Genesis six. This is this is good. Let's let's get this out of the way. So Genesis six. You may have heard. I'm I'm gonna read this whole passage. This is a controversial passage. It's also a weird passage, and that's what makes it controversial. And weird passages stand out to people, and they just love to hang out there. So here we go. Genesis six one through four. When man began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Now the issue is sons of God, in the Old Testament, at least oftentimes, does refer to angels. And they saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Verse 4, the Nephilim, comes out of nowhere, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So, and Numbers 13 describes Nephilim as people who make everyone else feel like grasshoppers because they're so big. Now, so there's a number of options that people have presented as ways we can handle this. One of them is, the sons of God saw that human women were attractive. Angels, fallen angels, sinfully decided to marry women and mate with them. And that's where we get giant people from. Uh, Now, notably, this is before the flood, so then these people would have died out afterward, is is the idea. That's why we don't see giant people nowadays, because God wiped them out. Maybe, that, that might be right. Nephilim is a word that's used twice in the Bible, and I just read you both passages, and they're both pretty peculiar. So... It's hard to like make a really confident assertion one way or another. Another option, Wayne Grudem articulates this view. I feel pretty unconvinced by this. But he says, sons of God is a weird word to use for angels. So it's not referring to angels. I say, hey man, in Job, sons of God is literally a word used for angels and demons, no less. So anyway, but okay, the, the argument that Grudem and some of his associates, people who hold the view as well, will say, okay, sons of God are people of God, people God created, who married women they weren't supposed to marry. And that's why God wiped out the earth, because they weren't supposed to marry them. The trouble is, it just says that they married the women. It doesn't say that they, like, these women were, like, unmarriable. So, but honestly, we're kind of both being conjectural, so it's hard to say. And I think that's kind of what we just need to say, is this thing in Genesis on some level is not pleasing to God. There are these people who are the Nephilim who exist, mighty men come from them, and then they get wiped out. Um, 
But then even, actually, now that I think about it, in numbers, there are Nephilim who are still alive, so... Huh, maybe they are angels. So, okay, well, there, there's more, there's questions that I'm literally asking now as I teach this to you, so I'm not quite sure. <laughs> oh, boy, I've never had that happen before, like, have a question mid-teaching. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, that's what you get. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, sh I'm sure I need to get used to it. Yeah. That's why I'm an intern. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, goodness, that's good. Okay, so, well, that's Genesis 6. It's a weird passage. It's a really weird passage. People make a lot with it. And I think probably what we should do is just hold our questions and hold them as non-answers in some ways. Um, and we'll talk about, okay, at the end of all this, I'm, I'm hoping to say, okay, look, we've talked a lot about angels and demons. What are we supposed to do with this? But I'm going to save that for, for the very end. I think that's a nice wrap-up. Okay, demons have power. We talked about this. I, I, I'm going to kind of almost, I'm not going to quote any of these passages, but... Um, We've seen angels are powerful, therefore demons are powerful. There are other passages that say that demons have power. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, 2 Corinthians 4. That's a lot of power. To blind unbelievers is power. However, their power is limited. Romans 13.1, let every person be subject to governing authorities. Okay, that's talking about human authorities, but then more broad. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He's the ruler of this world, other passages say. That's authority, but God has given it to him. He didn't take it without God's providential plan unfolding. Um, their power is limited. We've talked about Job 1 and 2, how God put definite boundaries on Satan. But one that we haven't yet talked about is Matthew 12 where Jesus basically says, can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Jesus is saying that because he's saying, look, I'm conquering the kingdom of Satan. I'm binding him. I have more power than him. He's limited. One of the specific ways that people often will mention, and I think they're right, is to say demons cannot read our minds. I think that's true. 1 Corinthians chapter 2.11 says, who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. I think that that means the only person who can read our minds is us and God, who knows everything. Satan is not all-knowing. Even angels are not all-knowing. Angels learn things. So anyway, I, I guess I don't know that angels learn things. I can't think of a pastor on top of my head that says that. But at the very least, there is no indication that angels know our minds. Now look, I think Satan's been doing this for a while. He's pretty good at it. So I think that he generally can have an idea when we're struggling with doubt or when we're bothered by something, whatever. But he can't literally know all of our thoughts. I think that is reserved for God who's all-knowing and us who are interacting with ourselves. I think that's what 1 Corinthians 2 is saying. There's a few other verses that I won't mention that might indicate this as well, but I think 1 Corinthians 2 is is good enough. Um, we're going to need a cruise here. Demons enslave non-believers to live evil, unbelieving lives. Galatians 4.8 is one of those. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. We're going to talk in a moment about how demons are false gods. When people worship false gods, they're worshiping demons. They were enslaved by those who by nature are not gods. Satan, what does he do? Satan accuses us. He is called, in Revelation 12, the accuser. He's the accuser who accuses people day and night before God. Good news. 
We're not condemned because Jesus died and rose again. So Satan is lying. He is our accuser, but he's a liar. And we'll see more about that in a moment. Satan tempts us. He's identified in Matthew 4, 3 as the tempter who comes. 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, he's the tempter. He has tempted you, but your labor will not be in vain. An encouragement after talking about kind of what, what Satan does. We should not give opportunity for the devil to tempt us. Ephesians 4.26. Give no opportunity to the devil. So be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. If we go to bed angry, we're giving Satan opportunities to tempt us. But in fact, we're called to flee temptation, to run away. 1 Corinthians 6. 18, flee from sexual immorality. 1 Timothy 6, 11, talking about worldliness, material things. That's the context going on. As for you, man of God, flee these things. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, I've talked about this last week, but no temptations overtaking you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will let you, or, sorry, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I think that should be encouraging. Yes, Satan is powerful. Yes, he's really good at his work. But there is literally no temptation that we're incapable of escaping and enduring. We are capable of enduring and escaping all of Satan's ploys. In other words, we can resist Satan. James 4, 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We can resist Satan. He's resistible. He is resistible. I, I can't. I can't resist. God, I, we're, I'm going I'm I'm to tell you later in a few weeks, I think God's irresistible. I literally think that. I think if Jesus presents himself to us and we comprehend that, I think we can't resist him. But we can resist Satan. Okay, anyway, we're, that, that's for later. Demons sometimes seek to be worshipped. This should identify in our minds as a problem, in particular because we saw explicitly angels should not be worshipped. In general, only God should be worshipped, but even specifically, the angel says, worship God, don't worship me. Colossians 2.6, don't let anyone disqualify you with worship of angels. And we, we talked about Revelation 19. False false gods are demons. False gods are demons. Psalm 106.37. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to who? It doesn't say to the gods of the area, the other, the other ethnicities' gods. It says to the demons. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. Deuteronomy 12, 31. They even burned their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. To their god. Okay, but that's to demons. Similar Jeremiah 7. 1 Corinthians, uh, no, 2 Corinthians 10, 20. Paul says, what pagans sacrifice to their gods, they offer to demons and not to God. I added to their gods. It, it literally, quote, what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. But the context of that is them offering things to idols. So if we're going to make sacrifices to other gods, what we're actually doing is making sacrifices to demons. Revelation 9.20 mentions the same thing. They don't give up worshiping demons and idols, etc., I think this is why, the fact that false gods are demons, I think this explains why so many global false religions involve bodily harm and sexuality outside of marriage. I think that's because it's demonic. They're contrary to God, and they want to 
destroy humanity instead of help it and let it flourish. Demons want to corrupt us. And I think that's why other false religions employ harm to humanity instead of flourishing. That's a general statement, of course, but I think that's why so many of those false religions have stuff like that involved in them. We see that in the Bible, we see that in modern day. Not so much on this continent, but elsewhere in the world, for sure. Demons inspire false prophets sometimes, test the spirits because false prophets have gone into the world. Demons sometimes teach false doctrine. Galatians 1.8, if we or an angel preaches a gospel contrary, let him be accursed. There's deceitful spirits. There's teachings of demons, 1 Timothy 4.1. Demons are deceptive. Um, let's see. 2 Corinthians 11.14-15. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Disguise themselves as servants of righteousness is what they do. His servants do that. Uh, that's deceptive. He's deceptive. Demons are destructive and harmful. There's many examples here. Uh, what's, what's one? Mark 9. Uh, let's do the Mark 5. We're familiar with this because of the sermon series in Matthew. The parallel version of the two demon-possessed people is here in Mark 5. There was a man with an unclean spirit. He lived in the tombs. They couldn't even bind him, even with a chain. He would break the chains. Talk about strong, powerful demons, right? Um, he would break the shackles. No one could subdue him. Night and day, he would cry out, cutting himself with stones. Demons are harmful and destructive. That's not flourishing. Some medical issues are demonic. Some are not. In Luke 9, 39, demons do cause seizures. In Mar Matthew 4, 24, demons do not cause seizures. They're just medical. So... They're not always, it's, it's not cut and dry that it's just always the case that demonic oppression causes medical illness, but sometimes demons do cause medical illness. And we'll talk about how to handle that in a moment. Demons are afraid of God. Demons are afraid of God. James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. They shudder. Demons shudder at God. Here they are, living their lives, wrecking our lives, and they shudder. They shudder when they think about how there is God. I, I like that. That's good. Uh, okay, but ironically, demons know the truth. You know, the people who confess Jesus most accurately are often demons and not even people. They know who he is. Mark 1, 23, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's a demon. Mark 3, 11, there's a demon. You are the Son of God, he says to Jesus. Acts 16.6, 6, a fortune-telling evil spirit was in this slave girl, and she keeps on confessing behind them. These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Matthew 8, the demons approach Jesus and say, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? James 2.19, even the demons believe. They know, they know what the truth is. They're fully aware. Satan is a thorough Trinitarian. He knows, he knows what's up. But still, they lie, they lie. But they know the truth, but they don't live according to it. Talk about an epitome of sin, huh? Okay, demons obey God. We've seen this. Uh, in Job 1 and 2, uh, God says, look, you can do this, you can do this, but you may not do this. Satan obeys him. Mark 1, 27, what is this? A new teaching with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So they obey him. They obey God. But here's, here's one that I think is practical for us to, especially. Demons are subject to Christians. Demons are subject to Christians. Matthew 10, 1. 
He called to him, this is Jesus, his 12 disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out. Luke 10, even the demons are subject to us in our name. This is the 72. And he says, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Acts 5, the early church did this. Those afflicted with unclean spirits, they were all healed. All of them were healed. So this kind of bumps against our lived reality, though, sometimes, because sometimes we do struggle to, well, maybe identify demonic oppression, but sometimes even when we know there's demonic oppression, we struggle with it. How can we cast it out? I want to point out to us, in the whole Bible, there are going to be almost exceptions to this, but they're not really. In the whole Bible, there is never a demonic instance that is impossible for Christians to overpower. It's never impossible. There's a case in Mark 9 where he says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Some manuscripts add in fasting, so hard to say. Prayer and fasting, let's say. So what's their problem, though? Their problem is not that it was impossible, that the demon was too strong. Jesus was like, I need you guys to pray. You need to pray. That's your problem. You're not praying. In another case, these are the two cases where the Christians struggled to cast out demons. They lacked faith. Why do we not cast it out? Matthew 17, 18, 17, uh, 19, and 20. Because of your little faith, Jesus says. Because of your little faith. I think this should embolden us. Because we, th there is no impossibility as far as demons go. There's just, hey guys, I need you to trust me. Hey guys, I need you to be praying. I mean, that's not a hard ask. That's just a Christian life ask in a lot of ways. It, Jesus never says, oh, this kind is too hard. You, you need just God to do it without using you as an instrument. That's not the argument. The argument is, well, you're just not praying. Hey, you, you just don't believe in me. You know, so I hope that this emboldens us to approach demons, in fact. Can a Christian be possessed by a demon? Can a Christian be possessed by a demon? Demon possession is sometimes used in our Bibles to express what's going on in the original, which is, maybe demon possession is a, a fair phrase, but it's really, it's one word, demonized, demonodzai, is, is at least close to the pronunciation. Demon possession, in, in my ears, seems to imply like total control. You can do whatever you want, you just possess them, you take them and bring them to do whatever it is you please. But as we've seen, God puts boundaries on demons. So I, I don't think it's fair, it's, I don't think it's right to say that we're just, anyone who's oppressed by a demon is, or possessed by a demon, if what we mean is they are powerlessly controlled by the will of the demon and that's just all that's going on, that, that's not true. God puts boundaries on them. Here, here's what I think, how I think we should approach them. We should approach demons boldly and soberly. Boldly and soberly. Luke 10, 19. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. Serpent, call back to Satan, serpents and scorpions. And over all the power of the enemy, who is a serpent, and nothing shall hurt you. Nothing shall hurt you. So, even if it's possible for a Christian to be possessed by a demon, whatever that means, he promises us nothing will hurt us. Ephesians 6, 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all. All the flaming darts of the evil one. All the flaming darts. At the very least, I, I'm inclined to say, no, a Christian cannot be possessed by a demon. I'm just, I just, I'm inclined to think that. If we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we're not going to be filled with a demon. I, that's just, I just think that. But even, even if we're oppressed by demons, even if it's possible to be possessed, whatever that means, by a demon, 
Their oppression to us cannot take our faith away. The, the shield of faith extinguishes all of the darts of the evil one. I'm inclined to think that that just means they can't touch us, really. Like they may afflict us, but they can't be in us, even though if they could be in us, and I don't think they could, I think we're filled with the Spirit, filled, filled, like there's no room for Satan. But some of this conjecture, so I get it, but they cannot take our faith away. The shield of faith extinguishes all the darts. So that's the boldly part. But here's the soberly part. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I think God's saying, don't mess around. Don't mess around. Like, this is real stuff. But I think we need to hold those both, boldness and soberness. Boldness and soberness. We're, we're, we're almost done here. How should we pro Okay, that's good, that's good. Demons know. Here's, here's more reason to be bold. Demons know their time is coming. Have you come here to torment us before the time, they asked Jesus? They know full well what's coming. They know there's a time for them to be tormented, they say to Jesus, when he's walking on earth. Revelation 20, verse 10 says that they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. They know it's coming. They know it's coming. Their end is determined. Demons will be defeated when Jesus comes back. They will be defeated. Hebrews 2, 14. I love this passage. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. Since we're human, Jesus became human for us. Why? Why did he do that? That through death, he became a human to die. We're going to talk about the incarnation later. That is, oh, I'm going, to, I'm going to let that pass by. So that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the evil one. Talk about God's giving you authority, but with limitations. God gave Satan the power of death, right? The evil one has the power of death. Jesus became a man to destroy the one who has the power of death. Like, oh, he wins. He wins. Satan has some ownership, but it ain't full and final. Jesus has that, and he is destroying the one who has power over death. So that Jesus has demonstrated his power over death. Oh, that's good news. Okay, but he's going to be destroyed. He's going to be destroyed. That's the point. We also will play a part. We don't talk about this a ton, I don't think, but I think this is worth being encouraged about. We will play a part in the destruction of Satan and demons. Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under whose feet? Under your feet. Under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I mean, that's my feet are going to crush Satan. It's not his feet. It's our feet. We will participate in Jesus' conquering of demons. That's epic. Revelation 12, 11. They have conquered him, that's the accuser, that's Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. How is it that we came about conquering Satan under our feet? By the blood of the Lamb. Because Jesus died for me, I'm going to step on Satan. That is such a fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 3. Your child's going to bruise your head, but his heel's going to get frozen. Gee, bru frozen, bruised. I'm, I'm getting so excited, I'm losing my words here. <laughs> Jesus, his ankle gets bruised. He, he was crucified. That hurt, right? Satan was crushed by his heel, though, and he is being destroyed by Jesus being killed. And now, when Jesus' feet crush Satan, our feet participate in the crushing. That is epic! Okay, oh, we're over time. I'm going to keep going. Demons, okay, two, two more points, two more points. Demons will be tormented. They will be tormented. They will assemble, Revelation 16, 14. 
I'm just gonna, Revelation 16, 14, they're, they're going to assemble for the great battle of the great day before God Almighty. But then after that, that battle is not going to last so long, will it? Because they're going to then be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. Revelation 20, 10. We've read this a couple times already, but the angel who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. As spirits, demons are spirits, right? They do not experience physical death like we do with our physical bodies. But those spirits, those angels who sinned, will experience spiritual death. That is punishment and forsakenness from God, God's wrath. They'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Demons will lose. They will be tormented. They do not have the final say. A closing encouragement. Okay. I think we should take heart that God has created angels specially for his worship and for our service. I think that should be encouraging to us, that God has created spiritual beings in a peculiar way for our service, for his worship and our service. They, they're ministering spirits sent to serve the elect, right? I mean, that is heartening. God created them for us in a very real way. And for him to worship, yes, amen. But we're made in the image of God. God cares for us peculiarly. So he creates angels to serve us peculiarly. That's good news. And then we will participate. Not only will can Satan and his demons not quench our faith, not only will the shield of faith quench all the darts, of the evil one, but we will participate in his destruction. That's all wicked good news. That's all awesome. But here's what, how Jesus reframes all of it. He doesn't deny that. He's, he's just as excited about that as we are, I'm sure. Even more so. I mean, his emotions are more pure and more epic than ours are. So if he's excited, he's excited. Right? Okay, but Luke 10, 17. The 72, they go out. And then they, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I think they're celebrating the same reality I just got done celebrating. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, rejoice in this, that the spirits are sub... Sorry. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this. Do not. That's the opposite. Man, I even had a good builder, you know? Okay. Nevertheless, yes, they're su subject to you. I saw Satan fall out of heaven. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this. The spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. After all, our salvation is something that even angels long to look into. We have this great privilege, the greatest privilege even over the pure angels. We certainly have privilege over the fallen angels, but we even have privilege over the good angels, the whole, the elect angels, the Bible calls them. Let's remember that that's the most important reality to think about. I'll, pr I'll pray for us. God, thank you for creating angels, and thank you that... You will overpower demons in a full and final way that we'll participate in that even. And thank you for having a good and holy purpose for all these things that you do, God. And thank you for creating spiritual beings for, for our service, God. And we look forward to participating with them, worshiping you, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
who was and is and is to come. Lord, you deserve that infinite lasting praise and we want to do that with the angels. So we look forward to that. Thank you for creating them in the meanwhile to serve us and protect us. Let us walk emboldened lives with you and for you, treading on serpents and scorpions, looking forward to that ultimate full and final treading that we will do on that great day. In your name we pray, amen.